0: Well, we'll be continuing in our All for One series in the book of Ephesians today, Uh, but before we get to Ephesians, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find the Psalms there, and just to the right of the Psalms, just after that, is the book of Proverbs. We'll be in the fourth chapter of Proverbs this morning. We will get to Ephesians, I promise. Hopefully everybody's had time to to turn to Proverbs 4. Before we begin, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to come today because we need you. Lord, we need you more desperately than we even realize. Every hour... There's no time of our lives that we can do this on our own. And when we seek to, we are destined to fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. So, Father, I pray that as we as we come together today to offer you this sacrifice of praise. To study your word together. To join our hearts in fellowship and encouragement of one another. That we would be changed. That today we would not merely grow in information, but in transformation. That we would learn how to guard our hearts. Knowing that everything we do comes from there. Lord, we recognize that none of us is clean. None of us can approach you on our own merits. So we come empty-handed on our knees on your terms, not ours. We cling to the promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just And forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in this moment we seek that, Lord. we confess that even even those who are in a saving relationship with you by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, we continue to veer off the path, to become distracted, to put our attention on other things, to put our hope, in other sources of strength. We don't want to, Lord. We want You. We want to cling to You, but we're not good at it. So we hang our hope on the fact that You cling to us. Remind us today, Lord, that our our protection comes from You You protect us by righteousness. Help us to be wise, to live right, to be humble, to seek justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Now as we open your word, Lord, let it speak to our hearts that it might speak through us to a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen in Proverbs chapter 4 we'll begin uh, <clears throat> excuse me I guess I'm going to need my glasses I thought I was going to do without you get tears going with those songs and then I can't see anything uh, we'll begin with uh, verse 10 of Proverbs chapter 4 Solomon writes, Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. My son, Pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. In Proverbs 4, Solomon emphasizes the importance of wisdom. It kind of climaxes there in verse 23, where he says, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Now, that's an interesting thing for him to say, because he spent chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 talking about chasing after wisdom. Get wisdom. Whatever you do, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Do this. This is important. But he says now, as the climax, as the culmination of of sorts, of this idea of getting wisdom. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Now, these imperatives that follow that, that come after verse 23, uh, they, they appear to be more of the means of how you guard your heart. It's not like additional. It's guard your heart and do these things And you'll be guarding your heart. It's the way to keep the inside right so that the outside will be right. Right acting flows from right thinking, right focus, right priorities. If we guard our heart by watching our mouths, by focusing on where we're headed, and by being careful and steadfast in considering our ways, not veering from the path of righteousness, then we will find that we are protected by that righteousness now Paul is in Ephesians calling the Ephesian believers to suit up as it were with God's protection for battle against the evil one last time when we were together we looked at the belt of truth learning that the experience that the experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth today we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness Now as you're following along in your program, you'll see there that uh, when we're talking about suiting up, Paul is talking about being prepared, protected, and proactive. So let's turn our attention back to Ephesians chapter 6, and that's where we'll be focused today. We'll bounce around to a number of scriptures, but but our attention is given to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul's admonition to us to don God's armor as soldiers of the cross involves being prepared, protected, and proactive. Now, we'll look at at a chunk here, but before we we get into our focus, let's read uh, from verse 10 through the end of this thought. Ephesians 6. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. He goes on to add a a personal request that they would pray for Him. Pray also for me, verse 19, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now as, Paul, or as Chuck opened us this morning with prayer and, and looking at Psalm 23, this protected idea that we have as sheep under this great shepherd. This psalm, speaking of the Lord, actually is looking forward to Christ David didn't fully grasp that yet, but the Lord knew exactly what he was inspiring him to write. And we see this picture of walking calmly in the midst of dangers and toils and snares, through the valley of the shadow of death, even in the presence of enemies, to sit down at a victory celebration and eat, relaxed, protected. That's a beautiful picture. And as Chuck mentioned, the the spiritual armor that we're talking about here applies to the believer. You see, before you're in Christ, you don't have this armor. It hasn't been issued to you. I don't get to go put on uh, military equipment as a civilian. It's not mine to put on. I haven't been issued that. But everyone enlisted in the army... Every soldier being deployed for battle is issued the appropriate gear for protection to wage war. It's crucial for us to recognize that when we are going to put on this armor, we have to be enlisted. We've got to be part of God's army, if you will. It's not enough for us to be fans. We need to be on the team. We need to receive Christ The first half of the book of Ephesians is all focused on what that means. What does it mean to be in Christ? And the second half, as we're looking at now, is if I'm in Christ, and I understand what all that means, what am I supposed to do about it? How do I live that out? How do I walk through this dark world in a way that matches up, not with how I feel, not with how I'm used to thinking, but with who I am in Christ? As a child of God, wholly, fully accepted, dearly loved, clean. Not because of anything that I have done to make myself clean, but because of what Christ has done to take away the filth of my old sin-based life. When I'm in Christ, I'm on the team, I'm in the army, I'm enlisted. And now it's time to put on the armor. But I don't know about you, I've got, I've got these pull-on shoes to wear right now. Because if I, if I have shoes that tie periodically, they come untied, don't they? And I have to stop and retie them. Every once in a while, I've got to tuck my shirt back in if I've been sitting at my desk for a while. It kind of gets untucked. If I've been driving for a long time, when I get out, you all know what I'm talking about. You've got to readjust your clothes a little bit. It's not the same as when you got started. When a soldier is in battle... They have to regularly check their equipment. They have to regularly make sure that it is adjusted and calibrated and fitted right. And sometimes the belt gets a little loose. i got to tighten it up. i got to tie up my boots. i got to be ready. Because if I just casually, lackadaisically go through this battleground, my armor won't be where it's supposed to be. Even if I've put it on, i got to put it on again. I don't ever want to take it off while I'm in this combat zone. Understand civilians, don't, they don't wear the Kevlar. They don't have that stuff going on. But when I'm in, I recognize the threat and I stay vigilant. It's really important for me to recognize that I have to constantly be alert. Because as Peter said in his letter, We have an enemy who's prowling around just waiting to pounce like a lion on a wounded gazelle. And if we don't stay alert, he's just waiting to devour us. Paul says, suit up. Be prepared, protected, proactive. Verses 14 and 15 are really our focus today. We'll be looking uh, in next week. We'll be looking at the latter part of verse 14 today reading that again he says stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist we talked about that last week with the breastplate of righteousness in place that's today and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace we'll look at that next time today our core reality is this the protection we need in battle is the righteousness we have received by grace. The protection we need in battle is the righteousness we have received by grace. I think as we go along, this will become clear to you. Understand the fact that we have received this righteousness is central to understanding how we put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's one thing to say, put on the armor. It's another thing to know how. When I started coaching uh, at a, a private school uh, a little bit north of here, our first practice, my brother will remember this, we got up there with a bunch of kids who had never played football before. If you've ever had the experience with little kids in rocket football of trying to put on pads and get all the pads to fit right into the pants when they've never done it before, that by itself will take you a whole day. I mean, that that's the that's everything. It's just figuring out, how do I get this gear on? And then periodically throughout the season, you better check because they're going to get that gear messed up. Because they don't have the experience to understand it. We who are in Christ are to put on the armor, but if we haven't learned how to put on that armor, we're going to have a real struggle, aren't we? We've got to know how to do this. So today as we walk through this, hopefully you will see... But the protection we need in battle is the righteousness we've received by grace. Let's start out with the same thing Paul starts out with in verse 14. Stand firm then. Stand firm then. Mark this. The enemy hates us as defectors from his kingdom. The enemy hates us as defectors from his kingdom. Some of you have had the experience already of recognizing that when I came to Christ and I thought that everything was going to get better, right? Some of you are smiling and chuckling right now because you know. I thought it was going to get better. My life was going to come together. It was going to get easier. And my experience was that it felt almost like it got worse. It felt like, man, my relationships that I thought were going to get fixed became harder. I, I struggled with guilt and shame, a heavier burden than I had before. Why? Two reasons. First, I became aware of that which I was not aware of previously. Secondly, the enemy hates us as defectors. He once owned us, whether we realized it or not. But we have, in his mind, been traitors to our former prince. The one who used to rule our lives no longer does. We've defected to a new kingdom. And he hates us for it. It has stirred up hell against you if you have come to Christ. Now he hated you just as much before, but he hates you as a defector now. Before, when you were just going along, living your life, not giving one thought one way or another to whether you please God or please the devil, in the words of the great 20th century theologian bob dylan you got to serve somebody it may be the devil or it may be the lord but you're going to have to serve somebody and the truth of the matter is when we're just going along the devil owns us turn back a couple of pages to ephesians chapter 2 if you've been with us on this journey this will be familiar to you already Paul starts out the book of Ephesians saying, Blessed be, praise be to God. He's blessed us in Christ in the heavenly realms. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us, He's adopted us, He's settled our future. And then just to make sure we get the perspective, because it's easy for us to get really filled up with ourselves when when we see all the good news just to settle our perspective he brings us back to earth only to lift us up again in chapter 2 starting with verse 1 he says as for you speaking to the the christians at ephesus and by extension you could imagine that he's speaking directly to you with this as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Notice that's not an if, by the way. That's a when. It's all of us. It's not some of you used to do this. You used to follow the ways of the world. And we can see them. They're in the headlines, right? We, you know, we recognize those sins of other people. No, that's not what he's saying at all. All of you. All of us. And Paul is never shy about including himself in this. He used to follow the ways of this world, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the devil, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature Deserving of wrath. It's who we were. We, didn't, we weren't sinners because we sinned. We sinned because we were sinners. It was who we were. It was our nature in Adam. All of us inherited that unrighteousness. We were dead. We were ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse 4 but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in christ jesus notice the theme all of this is in christ jesus for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and and that is not from yourselves it's the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast for we are god's handiwork Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice, we're not saved by the good works, but they were prepared in advance for us to do. When we've been changed on the inside, we get to work that out on the outside. The enemy hates us as defectors from his kingdom. We've been brought from death to life. We used to belong to him, we don't anymore. And he hates us. Therefore, notice this. He seeks to destroy our faith by working to deceive, distract, and discourage us. He seeks to destroy our faith by working to deceive, distract, and discourage us. Jesus said that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. In the book of Revelation, we read that he's the accuser of, of the brethren. That's what he does. He lies and he accuses. He works really hard to get you to think things that are not true. To get you to believe things about God and about yourself and about your future that are not true. Or to take bits of truth, because that's what good liars do, right? To take bits of truth, have truths are a whole lie, Get you to believe that piece, and then twist it. Spin it around so that the effect of that partial truth is a deception that takes you off the path of life. Now, he can't take you out of the Lord's hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. However, if he can trick you into thinking things that are not true, you'll end up living in a way that reflects that thinking. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up here. He seeks to destroy our faith by working to deceive, distract, and discourage us. Therefore, mark this, the battleground is the believer's mind. The battleground is the believer's mind. Notice, it's the believer's mind. Right? He already owns those who are not believers. There's no real battle. He already has you. You're already living in death, you're dead in transgression. But, once you've come out of there, he needs to convince you that you're still dead. See how the deceiver works? When we're dead, he wants us to think that we're really living. He wants us to think that this is life. This is the great thing. This is the American dream. Those Christians, man, they're just sticks in the mud. That, that's such a boring life or there's so much judgment maybe you've heard this one christians just judge everybody or it's a bunch of rules these are all lies from the devil don't get me wrong it's not that christians don't judge everybody the lie is that anybody else doesn't christians are the only ones trying not to because we're so busy judging others for judging that we're still stuck in our judgment But we recognize in Christ that, yes, we might sin. We might let our minds get in the wrong place, but we got to get out of there. That's not where we belong. Our minds need to follow the mind of Christ. It's not ours to judge. It is ours to tell the truth. That's what love does. We speak the truth in love. We expose the deeds of darkness by being the light, by reflecting the reality of Christ. Not beating people over the head with your Bible. Who's ever been helped by that? Who ever came to Christ because somebody made you feel so terrible about your life? Listen, if we don't speak truth about sin and judgment and hell, then no one will realize that they are dead and need life. They can't because, I don't know, they're dead. But the Spirit takes hold of the heart when we hear the Word of God and the Spirit illuminates it to us. He shines a light into us, takes out the stone heart we had, and gives us a heart of flesh. God does that. But He's called us to be His ambassadors, His representatives in the world. If we don't, how will anyone believe if they don't hear the Word? We've got to be engaged. But I'm getting into next week. Remember, the battle is not what it appears to be. Our tendency is to live according to our senses. The flesh, God's word, reminds us that there is more. The battle is not about your circumstances. It's not about the devil bringing bad circumstances into your life because he just wants to mess with you. That's not it. He wants to poke holes in your faith. He's got a sharp tongue. He speaks with a forked tongue, and he wants to stab you in the heart with it. He wants to puncture the the faith that holds you to Christ so that you stop believing what is true and you start listening to his lies. That's always been the method he uses. The details may differ, but the basic MO is the same. From Genesis 3 to now, did God really say that? Can you really trust God's word? Don't you think there's a better way? God's just turning you into a robot. If you do these things. The church is just trying to control your thinking. Which is exactly what the liar is doing. Satan works really hard to get control of your thinking, to get control of your mind. How does he do that? Generally through your feelings. If he can impact your feelings so that you start to doubt, then your thoughts will start to wander off then our armor starts to come undone. The battleground is the believer's mind. There is a greater reality. The enemy hates us as defectors from his kingdom, and he seeks to destroy our faith by working to deceive, distract, and discourage us. And everything that Satan uses as a weapon, God has already ordained as a tool satan wants to use your circumstances to shipwreck your faith the father wants to use your circumstances to shape your faith to bring you into maturity to give you an opportunity to learn to lean on him to trust in something bigger than you can comprehend stand firm then now he continues and he says stand firm then after talking about the belt, belt of truth, he says, stand from them with the breastplate. Let's stop there. With the breastplate. Now, what, what is a breastplate? It's a strange term. He's referring here to what would look more like a tunic. It's really not. But you can imagine, if you're looking at, at medieval knights in, in armor, the piece that covers the chest, that covers the torso. Roman armor was not dissimilar. It was Different, but it was not entirely dissimilar. Early Roman armor had, uh, had a, a variety of different approaches to it. But as it developed, they had scale armor that you, you probably have seen in some pictures or in movies that looks like uh, it went from a, a, a solid piece that, that covered the body but didn't allow for much movement. You couldn't actually function very well to what they called scale armor. And the scale armor was very much like fish scales, little pieces of metal strung together, overlapping to protect you. It developed later into a ringmail or chainmail type of armor, which was heavy. And, and they used uh, leather straps in, in uh, various portions of it. it. That was the most common, was the ringmail type of armor, because it covered and allowed movement. Now, there were some downsides to it as well with all of this armor. I, as we're talking about this, I, I sent a message out while I was thinking this through to um, my brother and sons and, and uh, Bruce, who, who's a cop and was uh, in the Navy and dealt with delivering seals to, uh, to their locations for combat. I said, have any of you guys ever been shot while wearing uh, bulletproof vests, wearing the Kevlar? And uh, while one of them had taken a hit in the back and, and it uh, broke the steel plates that he was wearing, but, but was still couched in the, uh, in the softer portions of it, there was no, no real damage. right? But it hurt like a son of a gun, right? So with each of them who had not experienced it but had been in those circles, the The message was the same, very much like you might have seen on TV or movies as you've seen these things. The armor stops the projectile, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. The description that I got from a couple of different sources was it feels like being kicked by a horse. right? It can bruise you. It can break you up, but you survive. Understand when we're talking about this breastplate In the armor of God. It's protecting your vital organs, namely your heart. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. The attacks can still hurt. Christians feel pain, so throw away this silly notion that you're supposed to always have a smile on your face because everything is always great. Everything is awesome. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm super fine. God is good all the time, which he is. But let's stop using it as a glib excuse to not deal with reality. Because sometimes God is good, and I'm still hurting. He's still good all the time. And the enemy's attacks didn't pierce the armor, but right now it feels like a mule kick got me. Let's be real with one another. That doesn't mean we walk around wearing the face of the mourner, putting everything on your sleeve all the time. But this is family. Be real. Breastplate. Mark this down. What we believe and think drives how we live. What we believe and think drives how we live. As we read in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. The Roman breastplate, as we would call it here, but the Roman armor was like a shirt that would come down to mid-thigh, sometimes below, of this heavy metal-type protection or leather, sometimes in the early days, wood, uh, protection that would, that would guard that soldier against clubs and spears and swords. It wasn't really designed to protect them against arrows, but, but it would do that not as effectively because the arrows are smaller and could get through. But there was protection there. It was designed not to cover the whole body, like the medieval knights that we might think of, and you've seen the medieval knights try to walk around. doesn't work so well. He's very slow moving. Tedious. Roman soldiers didn't have their legs protected the same way. They didn't have their arms protected. They wore armor that allowed them to move and do battle. But it protected their vital organs. Specifically, the heart. It's not hard for us to see where Paul's going here. He's told us to wear the belt of truth. Right? The belt of truth keeps our armor together, holds everything. The soldiers, would, uh, you would attach your sword or, or gear to that belt. But it would also keep you from stumbling. If you can imagine you're wearing basically a metal sheet covering your, your upper body, hanging down over your legs, and it's just flopping around, you're not going to be very effective in battle. So the belt would gather it and hold it in place. That was important. But if you don't have this armor, man, it's just too bulky. It's too hard for me to deal with. Then your vitals are exposed and you're vulnerable. What we believe and think drives how we live. Notice that I cannot consistently live in a way that is inconsistent with what I believe. This is why the battleground for spiritual warfare is the mind of the believer. The devil can't take away the identity we have as children of God in Christ. But if he can get us to build our thinking on wrong understandings of God, ourselves, and the battle we're in, we can end up living a defeated daily experience. He will often do this by attacking our feelings. I'll give you just a confession. Now, don't anybody panic because I'm here for the duration. But I spent a big chunk of this week, I don't think it's a coincidence, The first half of this week, I was really struggling with emotions, with feelings that I, at first, didn't really identify. But for about half the week, I felt like, you know what, I might as well just chuck it. I'm no good at this pastor gig. You know, just be done. I'm just going to raise cattle. It's easier. I don't know if it's easier, but, you know, nobody dies if I mess up with the cattle. Felt completely ineffective. The devil was attacking my heart. My beliefs weren't changing, but my feelings were trying to lead me astray. I think the Lord allowed that to happen so that I could understand what it is that I'm talking to you about today. The devil wants to get your mind through the channel of your feelings. You get to choose what you think. Some of you are saying, no, I don't. Ride with me for a minute. We'll get there. You get to choose what you think, but you don't necessarily directly control how you feel. Our feelings are a response to stimuli, to circumstances. So the things that happen will impact how we feel. You may notice the weather has a huge impact on your feelings. When it's particularly hot, you don't really want to do certain things, right? When it's gray and cloudy, you may have sort of a a rainy days and Mondays always get me down kind of thing, right? Circumstances affect our feelings and we don't choose that. But we do choose what we do about it. We choose what we will do as an act of will regardless of the feelings. Raise your hand if you've ever had a day when you just did not want to get out of bed, right? Anybody? Raise your hand if you ever had a day when you did not want to go to work. <laughs> Some of you get a big amen on that, right? But you know what you did? You got out of bed and you went to work. Or you're probably not employed. But anyway, your will, your choice to think something different, to choose a different priority than what your feelings, your emotions, your affectations might direct you to do, you overcame those feelings by making a choice. Sometimes it's harder than others, without any question. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we can make a choice. But those thoughts that pop into our head, Very much like our feelings. We don't control that. But we control the ones that stay. The ones that abide. Some of you have had a Jehovah's Witness or a salesperson in the old days, the fuller brush man, might come to your door and they knock on your door. You don't control who knocks on your door. Not too long ago we had some scam artists come through, Setting up robberies and in our our burglaries in, in our local houses, and they'd knock on the front door. You don't control that. But you do control who you let in. You control who gets to sit on the couch with you. And when those negative thoughts, those deceiving, distracting, discouraging thoughts knock on your door, here's a thought: don't invite them in for coffee. Don't let the devil sit on your couch doesn't belong here. Take hold of yourself. No, no. This is my house. This is my door. Goodbye. Slam the door. Press on. What we believe and think drives how we live. But the enemy will consistently try to get to our beliefs and our thinking through the channel of our feelings. He's going after our heart. Biblically, when we look at the term heart, there are some similarities to how we use it today. It's not entirely the same. When they talk about the seat of emotions in Bible times, in the Greek and the Hebrew, they generally would use references that we would not use today. Like, I love you from the depths of my bowels. We don't usually say that. and I don't recommend it for your anniversary to say that to your wife but the bowels were the seat of emotion, right? We didn't look at it the same way. The heart generally included the entire inner person, the mind, the emotion, most specifically the will. It's that part of me that is truly me. When my body is broken, this part of me remains. If you cut off my arm, I am at a loss, but I'm still me. If you cut off my leg, I'm at a loss, but I'm still me. Somewhere inside of me is what the Bible would call the heart. The devil wants to get to your heart. Because if he can use your feelings to mess up your thinking and your beliefs and impact your will so that you no longer choose to do what God's called you to do. You become disengaged from the battle. And while he can't take you out of God's hand, he can take you off the roster for today. You're still on the roster. You're still on the bench, but you're not in the lineup. Don't let Satan bench you through your feelings. Mark this down. If the enemy can get to our heart, we will lose focus, shift priorities, and run from the battle. If the enemy can get to our heart, we will lose focus, shift priorities, and run from the battle. We saw this in Proverbs chapter 4, didn't we? Keep your eyes straight ahead, take care of your thoughts. If you can get to our heart, if you he can use our feelings to affect our will, we will lose focus, shift priorities, and run from the battle. Therefore, above all, guard your heart. The battle's for our mind, but the attacks often come through our feelings. Our feelings respond to the stimuli of circumstance, we don't control them directly. Our feelings affect our will and are easily deceived, distracted, and discouraged. The heart is the inner person. To include the mind, the soul, the will, the emotions, guard it. Guard your heart. Stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness. Of righteousness. What is this righteousness? Well, we saw in in Proverbs 23 that the way to guard your heart is to do these righteous things. Right? Stay clean on the inside. Stay clean on the outside. In fact, Deuteronomy 6, Moses is saying that to the the people as we see uh, the the great Shema as, as Israel's great call to worship. They're preparing to enter the promised land. They're not there, they're not, you know, we'll see that happen a little bit later in Joshua, but they're preparing for that. And the call to them is to keep the word of the Lord perfectly. Continue in obedience. Obey every word that I have commanded you. And I will be with you. And I will fight for you. Their protection came from their righteous obedience. That presents a problem. Write this down. My own righteousness fails. My own righteousness fails now if I'm relying on my righteousness to be my protection from the enemy if the way I protect my heart is by the good things that I do and how well I obey God and how perfectly faithful I am to him brother I'm in trouble Because there's not one of us that does it perfectly. We can check off the checklist of the law and we don't do well at keeping it. But even beyond that, as Jesus told the rich young ruler, and he said, keep these commands. Well, I've kept those since I was a boy. Probably not true, but as much as I thought I did, I I kept those since I was a boy. And Jesus said, let's go a little farther. Let's check your heart. Sell your stuff. Give it away. Uh, Wait a minute, Jesus. You see, there's more to it. And we've been called beyond just the keeping of a checklist. Beyond religion. Beyond even the written word of the Old Testament law. Yes, that, but it's more. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. If you're in Ephesians, you're going to turn back to the left. When you get to some Names that you recognize, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're in the right spot. If you get back to the things that sound like the Grams kids, then you probably went too far. I'm playing. Matthew chapter five. In the first of, of the Gospels, we call them the Gospels because they are the story of Christ's earthly ministry. It's the story of the good news. It tells us what he did while he was on earth. In Matthew chapter 5, let's pick up with, um, hold on just a moment while I find my place here. <clears throat> let's, let's pick up with verse 17. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus speaking, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is one of the messages we get today very often is forget about the Old Testament. You can just unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't need it because Jesus ended all that. It's all done. Well, that's not quite accurate. We need the Old Testament to understand the new and we need the new to understand the old. And Jesus is here saying, I'm not getting rid of any of it. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. At the end of Luke, he tells the disciples that all of the scriptures point to him. He says it to the Pharisees about the law of Abraham, the law of Moses. But he says later on, as he's teaching them from Genesis all the way through the end of, of what we know as the Old Testament, All of these things pointed to Messiah. He says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, lest we get confused because of our modern understanding of Pharisees, those were the people who kept the law best. They did what God said best and most. They were known as the religiously pure and pious So, you got to be better than them or you ain't getting in. Jump down to verse 48. Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, in between these verses, Jesus kind of unpacks the law and says you've heard this don't murder. I'm telling you if you're angry with your brother you're a murderer in your heart when you wish ill on them. It's the same root. You've heard don't commit adultery but I'm telling you if you've looked upon someone to lust after them you're already an adulterer in your heart. He wraps all that up by saying Therefore, be perfect. Not perfect on our scale, but perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now somebody jump up and say amen if you've got that down. Here's what you've got to know. If you don't, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is a problem. My righteousness fails. If the breastplate of righteousness is my righteousness, I have a real issue. The purpose of the law, as Paul and the writer of Hebrews both tell us, is to reveal sin, to show us how far short we fall, to convict us of sin. We saw last week that the law reveals our need for God's grace. The more I realize how far short I fall of God's true righteousness, the less comfort I find in the protection of my own righteousness. My own righteousness fails. But the good news is, mark this down, Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to believers. Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to to believers. Now, that word imputed is going to be important for us to understand. This is the central piece of the what we might call the Protestant Reformation or the Great Reformation, the 16th century Reformation. The crux of it is the difference between being saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Saved by grace alone, I should say, through faith alone in Christ alone. His righteousness, or by being saved by grace, that makes me righteous. Subtle difference, but important. It's the difference between imputed and imparted. Imparted righteousness means I give you this, and now you. You become righteous. So in other words, when I get baptized, as some would teach, I now no longer have the guilt of my original sin, and I am able to live a meritorious life. From the treasury of Christ's merit and the merit of the saints and those who have done more than is enough, I get to, if you will, borrow from that. Therefore, it completes what is incomplete in my works. But that's not the biblical perspective at all in Romans chapter 4 and and elsewhere, but specifically in Romans chapter 4, Paul points out that Abraham's faith was imputed to him, was credited to him as righteousness. This is the crux of the gospel. Not that in Christ you're better now. No. You were dead. You don't get better from being dead. Instead, You have been brought to life because His righteousness is credited to you. It's counted as your righteousness. Here's why that becomes really important. If it's a matter of I get Christ's righteousness, so I'm forgiven, and now I start clean, and now I have to kind of work my way through, I'm going to really struggle when I find that I don't live up to the standard. And I'm going to have to try to either dumb down the law to find exceptions or ways for me to pay it off, contrary to everything we see in the gospel or i'm going to find that i can't get into heaven because i have to be perfect and i can't be perfect but the basis of our salvation is not my ability to live out righteous obedience the basis of our salvation is that jesus already did and we get his grade on the test. Right? I might get the wrong answers on the test, but he's giving me his grade. That's not how it works in the classroom. The classroom operates by law. But grace says, you fail, but everybody passes because of Jesus. You just have to accept that. That's a big deal. Christ's Perfect righteousness is imputed to believers. Imputed is a crucial theological word. It means that the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to my account. Imputed means credited. If you didn't write that down, you should. Imputed means credited. It does not mean that Christ has made me as perfectly righteous in my daily living as he is. But that his perfect obedience has been placed on my account. And all my sin is placed on his my sin is on His tab. Therefore, I can rest in the knowledge that the gospel reveals our access to God's grace. Therefore, mark this down, by His grace, not my works, but by His grace, Christ's perfect righteousness is God's perfect protection. Christ's perfect righteousness is God's perfect protection. His perfect righteousness is imputed to me. It's credited to me. It's reckoned as if it were mine. And it is where I find my protection. If my armor were of my own righteousness, I'd be in trouble. It would have as many gaps and holes in my armor as my obedience and faithfulness has gaps and holes. Every time I blow it, I'm unprotected. Every failure, unprotected. Every wayward thought, unprotected. Every second of my life that I put anything ahead of God as my priority in that moment, I am unprotected. That is the most heinous sin of all. It's the one that we ignore. And it's the one that none of us have ever kept. I don't think I've ever lived one moment of actually, truly, perfectly loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Too easily distracted i get too prideful when i do right and i get too depressed when i do wrong my focus is very seldom if ever perfectly on him and that's the biggest command of all one rule i blow at every moment no no if i if i've got to rely on my own righteousness for my armor it's got too many gaps and holes thankfully My protection doesn't rely on my armor, but on His. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Because God has placed us in Christ. Therefore, we get His righteousness. When the enemy attacks my mind, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is my one defense, my righteousness oh how I need you Lord but there is an important aspect of this armor that I must not forget I have to put it on therefore Paul says stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place mark this down Christ's righteousness is mine but I have to choose to wear it in battle by reminding myself that I have his righteousness By reminding myself that I have his righteousness. You see, I already have it. He's already given it to me. If I am in Christ, if I've received him by faith, if I have believed that God has meant every word that he said, Jesus is who he says he is. He died in my place and all the punishment, all the wrath that I deserve has already fallen on him. There is no wrath of God left for me. Because of his grace. If I believe that. If I've placed my hope in that. I've already been made righteous in him. Not in my practice. But in my account. That faith is credited as righteousness. But. I have to remind myself. That that's true. I have to remind myself. When the devil attacks my heart. When my heart is vulnerable to the enemy's attacks, I need to remember that I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. The the enemy's attacks cannot harm us when we trust in Christ's righteousness alone. And yet, sometimes it can still feel like a mule kick. It doesn't deny the pain. But it protects us from the fatal blow. I choose to wear it in battle by reminding myself that I have his righteousness. Next, Christ's righteousness is mine, but I choose to wear it in battle by letting his righteousness show in my actions. Letting his righteousness show in my actions. As the righteousness of Christ within me increasingly produces the fruit of his spirit coming from me. You may remember Ephesians 5:22 and 23. There's a fruit of the Spirit that grows from His Spirit within me. And those works of righteousness are not things that I work up, that I muster up from my will. They come from Him in me. As the righteousness of Christ within me increasingly produces the fruit of His Spirit coming from me, Paul calls that in Philippians 2.12, working out our salvation And he calls it living a life worthy of the calling we've received in Ephesians 4.1. Peter calls it making our calling and election sure, or if you have an NIV, confirming our calling and election. That's in 2 Peter 1.10. The book of 1 John, it's a short letter, but it was written so that we could have confidence in our saving relationship with Christ. So that we could know that we're in Him. It also has some of the most... Damning words in Scripture for those who want to play games. But it is there to comfort us, to keep us from sin, to make us aware that our hope is not in ourselves. It was written so that we could have confidence in our saving relationship with Christ. And to that end, he writes in 1 John 3, verses 18 to 24: You know what? I'm going to have you go ahead and turn there. Toward the back of your Bible. If you go to Revelation, you're all the way at the back. That's the last book and just slide to the left from there. The books get real skinny so they're easy to slip over. Hebrews, James, first and second Peter, first John. There we go. We're going to look at first John chapter 3 specifically verses 18 to 24. He says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Before I even get to the rest, the whole point of what he's saying here comes from, if you believe it, show it. Back it up. right? So this is kind of a bridge between Paul's crediting of righteousness and James saying, yeah, it's credited as righteousness, but you're just giving lip service if you're not living it out. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Say amen if you would like to have that in your life. Would you like to know that you're in the truth? Would you like to set your hearts at rest in his presence? This is how we do it. If our hearts condemn us, verse 20, we know that God is greater than, than our hearts and he knows everything we do this by living out in action and yet still our hearts condemn us dear friends verse 21 if our hearts do not condemn us we have confidence before God we see this as we live out our actions we feel that confidence we feel that assurance I can see him working in my life I can see it because it's changing me and I'm loving people not with words but with actions not in theory but in person if our hearts do not condemn us that's great right we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him so if I do what pleases him and I live in righteous obedience I can grow in my confidence and assurance but understand everything that we've seen says you don't earn it by that but because he is in you coming out of you you see it manifested And it's a testimony to the truth of what's inside. Continuing in verse 23, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. How do we obey? Believe. That's it. That's the hope. Not just believe, okay, I I accept that Jesus existed, but I'm placing my hope to borrow from the King James, to believe on Him, to put all of my weight on Him. He's my parachute. That's it. 24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. As we live out the love of Christ, our confidence grows, but don't miss that sometimes our hearts still betray and condemn us. So what then? Mark this down. This is what John is telling us here. It's what Paul says in a number of places, particularly in Romans 7. Remind, I, I wear this for battle by reminding myself that I cannot lose what I did not earn. By reminding myself that I cannot lose what I did not earn. John says that God is bigger than our hearts And we know that we are in Him because His Spirit causes us to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Because of His Spirit in us, we obey Him. Yet our hope is not in our obedience, but in Christ. Paul deals with this in Romans 7. This will be the last thing I have you turn to today. Unless I get real excited about something. We are at the end of our time. So, turn back to Romans chapter 7. Moving back to the left, not going quite as far as Matthew. Let's pick up with verse 15. Paul is wrestling with this very thing. If, if my heart condemns me, what then? I have to remember I can't lose what I didn't earn. He says this in verse 15, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. You get it? But the fact that I don't want to do it shows that there's truth in the law. It shows that I'm believing something is is better than what I'm doing and yet I'm still stuck doing it. Verse 17, as it is, notice this. It's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I'm not defined by it. It's not who I am anymore, but I still carry this virus, if you will. And every once in a while, these symptoms still manifest. It's not me. It's sin living in me. Verse 18. For I know that, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Somebody say amen if you know what that feels like. Amen. For I do not do the good I want to do. the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. My will joyfully conforms to the will of God. But I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I'm battling through this experience of the now and the not yet, but he's not done yet. Therefore, verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, somebody. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I desperately need to remind myself of this when my heart feels vulnerable to the accuser's attacks. Lastly, I choose to wear this armor in battle, this breastplate of righteousness, by tightening the belt of truth. By tightening the belt of truth. Sometimes the battle can loosen our armor, and we need to readjust it. The belt of truth is what holds it together. Sound doctrine connects the truth of God's word to our daily experience. Sound doctrine connects the truth of God's word to our daily experience. If we try to guard our hearts without the sound doctrine binding our thoughts, it's like sticking one arm through a Kevlar vest and expecting to be safe from gunfire. We need to be constantly evaluating whether our thoughts are aligned with truth in order to guard our hearts from the enemy's attacks. When our, th- when our thoughts start to get loose and stray from God's truth, we need to take stock and readjust our armor. By tightening the belt of truth. Hiding God's word in my heart. According to Psalm 119.11. Gives me a foundation of truth. That keeps me on track. And overcomes the attack of the devil. I need to study. Apply. And memorize the word of God. In order to remind myself of truth. When the devil attacks. With his lies. Tightening the belt of truth. Let's wrap this up. The protection of the believer is the righteousness of Christ. When I rest in Christ's righteousness, I need not fear the enemy's attacks. When I allow my feelings to lead, my mind wanders from truth and my feelings will not line up with reality. When I rely on my own righteousness, my strength will falter. Because that armor has holes. But I protect my heart when I remember that my armor is not the righteousness that I have achieved. But the righteousness that I have received. It's all him. The protection we need in battle is the righteousness we've received by grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we... As we study your word today, as we sing songs, and as we...